Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Deliverance from Demons podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Andros, and today we're going to be talking to David Miller of Church Sidcanoe in New Hampshire. If you guys are out in New England, I'd highly recommend you checking him out, um, checking out his church, even visiting, dropping in for a visit. And what's the cat's name again, David? I forget. His name is Paladin. Paladin. Yep. He's hanging out in the background to keep you guys yeah. interested in the podcast. So uh, <laughs> um, I want to show you guys something David's uh, spent a lot of time working on. And we're going to talk about this today. He has written a book on the history of exorcism in the church. And you can you can get it. You can uh, pre-order it on barnesandnoble.com. It's called Redacted, The Secret History of Exorcism. And uh, if you pre-order this book and he gets enough pre-orders, he's going to be in every Barnes & Noble store in America. Is that right? In North That's America right. or just America? North America. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So guys, go pre-order his book and uh, help get this out because... We want the enemy to be redacted and not the ministers right. of deliverance. So go pre-order his book. And then if you want to listen to his YouTube videos, check out Expeditionary Revival on YouTube. And uh, he's got a lot of sermons, a lot of great stuff coming off of his channel. Um, but yeah, we're going to be talking to him today about the history of exorcism in the church and how it has been powerfully contended how the enemy is powerfully contended against this and um yeah before we get rolling is there anything you want to say david um no i'm glad to be on here and i'm I'm happy to share about what i've learned from the history of the church yeah what brought you to write this book so i i started writing this book because i was in a class at regent university while i was working on my bachelor's degree and um you could pick a research topic so I was like, you know what? I want to know the history of deliverance because I've never heard anyone talk about it. And as far as I can tell, it was like Jesus and then Derek Prince and then 1900 years of silence. <laughs> and so I was like, I, I looked into it and, and it was like a, a 10 page research project or something. But what I found was um, incredible. So, so at that time I, I saw that there was a few times where deliverance was specifically um, removed out of revivals in a very um, purposeful way. And that led to the collapse of these revivals. And that when the church was thriving, I like in the early church, there was a lot of deliverance. So that piqued my interest so much that I started researching more. And I just used the resources that were available to me. I bought books. There's books like on this shelf that are like specifically about like the history of deliverance. Like this is like deliverance in the early church that I bought just because I was researching this. I went and I interviewed Bob Larson and Robert Slayerton and I interviewed some, some Catholics cause I was just trying to get as much as I could. And um, I, I don't know at what point I realized that it would eventually become a book, but as I was writing and writing more, I, I realized this is something that's incredible and this needs to get out there. This is, um, you know, the people that have gotten the chance to read it, like your, yourself, you've gotten a little bit, Dennis, or the people that have um, heard about what I've had to share. It, it's not my writing skills that are so incredible. It's the information that is in the book. And it's the information that I discovered that exists throughout history. That's just like, what the heck? This is crazy. And if we can learn about some of these principles, my hope is that we can avoid deliverance being redacted again, because yeah. as we're going to find, if you, if you, 
hear the history. Um, it, it's like this cycle just kept repeating itself over and over and over again. And um, I'm sick and tired of the enemy winning and I want to see God's people uh, be victorious. So that's kind of what motivated me to write this book. Amen. Yeah. For those of you watching on YouTube, <laughs> you can't really see the cover of it, but yeah, I, I love the cover of it. That's all right. You hold it yeah, up, David. I, I, yeah, I'll get, I'll get one back here. Right up. Here we go. See, here's the cover here. And that's, um, oh, there's a the camera. That's yeah. some their of the faces people on have been there. redacted. Right. Yeah. And those, those history characters on there, they all were casting out demons and you would know most of them. Like Martin Luther is one of the figures on there, but you didn't, you'd never know that they were involved in deliverance because this stuff was whitewashed from history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's too bad. And right now there's a giant move of deliverance that could either go one of two ways. Either it's never going to disappear or the enemy might redact it again. And my hope is that it never disappears. So, yeah. Um, I'm just going to, I've got a copy of his book in my hand. And, and I'm just going to kind of walk through a couple of the chapters that he's he's written out here, and we'll talk about those. So um, the first two chapters we're not going to talk about today. For the chapter number one is the fall of man. I think most of us are familiar with that story. And chapter two is the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. And it's basically every place where demons were cast out in the New Testament. Um, chapter three is where we're going to start today. And this is the history of deliverance in the church after it was established. And so we're going to talk about, um, right. There was about a 300 year long revival that broke out where Christianity swept the world. And it was really at the forefront of this revival was deliverance was exorcism. So, um, Yeah. Take it away, David. You're the expert. Well, I think that this is what's we live in such a um, deadened version of Christianity that revival is something that we need to bring the church back to life. So we have these periods of revival and it gives us goosebumps thinking of, oh, the power of God moving, people getting saved, like the Jesus Revolution movie that came out. And we see that. And every Christian that watched that, I'm sure like, oh, my God, Lord, do that in our day. We want to see thousands of people getting saved and baptized. Right. Um, but what we don't realize is that Christianity was always meant to be alive. It was never meant to be something that was occasionally brought back from the dead um, from like a long sleep. Like Charles Finney put it, like we're not supposed to be. Um, asleep and then occasionally wake up, fumble around in the dark and then go back to sleep again. So in the early church, we find one of the best examples of what the church was supposed to be. And that's why the chapter is called the 300 year revival, because there was 300 years um, of the church doing what it was supposed to be. And I think most of us look at the early church as an example of heroism and noble Christianity because of the martyrs and because they were they were closer to Christ but one of the things that made the early church what it was, was the power of God. And one of the things that made the power of God effective was deliverance. And what people don't realize is that deliverance was a huge part of this move in the early church. Um, the term that I use in the book, I think, is like the apostolic triad or something like that. But basically, there was three big things that were moving the church forward. Um, there was evangelism that every Christian live their life in a way that my purpose is to be a witness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was healing where every Christian knew I can lay hands on the sick 
and I can reasonably expect that people will get healed and people were getting healed. And then there was deliverance and deliverance was actually this engine that powered healing and evangelism and, and move the church forward. So this is what I discovered that was really incredible is another book on the shelf back there that uh, helped me understand the, the history here is called the Christianization of the Roman empire. By that was a secu- yeah. That was a secular guy that wrote that, yeah, right? Secular Yale historian expert on the Roman empire asked the question, how can the Roman empire thousand year history of paganism how can christianity come and take this thing over and he says well all the normal evangelism methods that we would think they were not effective because they were illegal uh they didn't really care what the christians had to say because they thought they were stupid um healing miracles they had some effect because they proved the divinity of christ but the shortcoming of healing miracles is that they did not disprove the divinity of jupiter so all that that did was add Jesus to the collection of gods that they were already worshiping. So that was not helpful. Um, what exorcism did, and the phrase that McCullen uses in the book is manhandling of demons, that early Christians would interrogate and torment these demons and they would manifest and they would confess that they were really the gods that were being worshiped and that they were powerless before the name of Jesus. So these pagans saw this happening and they began to convert in droves. And that was really the nuclear engine that was bringing about this revival. So that's the one thing is that it was driving evangelism. They did that publicly, right? The manhandling of demons. Yeah. Yes. It's public. There's stories um, of people like a Christian out on, on the street preaching and nobody cares what the Christian has to say until some demon manifests and they interrogate this demon in front of the whole market square. And then the whole market square turns into Christians because they saw their God gets humiliated by Jesus. Mm-hmm. So this is always public. And, and, and this drove evangelism. The other thing this drove was healing that a lot of the early church fathers wrote about exorcism and casting out of demons being the most uh, successful way to see divine healing. Now they would lay hands on the sick and command healing. That was all present too, but deliverance was helping drive healing. And the third thing that it was doing um, is that it was helping keep the church uh, clean. It was helping keep the demons out of the church because uh, one of the big questions today is, oh, can a Christian have a demon? I mean, yes. In, in Dennis's first podcast, <laughs> that's one of the questions. Yes. Everybody who doesn't like deliverance, they say that, oh, a Christian can't have a demon. Well, the early church fathers didn't know anything about that. They were casting demons out of Christians all the time. And that was one of the ways that they believed they could maintain holiness and pure doctrine in the church. Mm-hmm. Was, was this the period in time too, where, um, people were writing apologetics to Rome. Yes. And yeah, there was a story you shared about that. You want to talk about that? Um, So there's a couple, uh, there's Justin Martyr, who is considered to be like the hero of the first apologist. Um, He was a martyr in Rome, very famous writer. And he wrote the first and second apology defending Christianity. And what's really interesting is like, we have all these, like every Christian, you know, reformed Catholic, protestant they'll all quote this guy as like this hero of the faith and they go back his thesis statement of why christianity is superior to paganism is his quote was something to the effect of for you yourselves know that the name of jesus has been used to cast out demons the world over and in your city itself in the city of rome and that was his that was his okay look you see the demons coming out of everyone that's how you know it's real and that was his big thesis statement who was who was the guy that said find the most demon possessed person you can find? Right, that was Tertullian, and Tertullian was uh, basically in a 
courtroom or something. He was he was basically getting persecuted by the Romans. And his defense of himself was, hey, listen, you find the worst demoniac, the most demon-possessed person you could find, and any Christian at all will cast the demon out of them, and you will know that my God is real. And that was his defense of himself. Now, now, do you think I, – I would not be confident going into a courtroom and saying, find any Christian at all. No to cast a demon out today because we don't know what we're doing. But at that point, that shows you that from Tertullian's perspective, Mark 16 was a reality. These signs were following them that believed. And at that time, all the Christians that he knew of had the wherewithal to cast out demons. So it's just really telling that the church was successfully triumphing over one of the most powerful pagan systems in the world up until that time. And one of the things that was apparently taking place in the life of every Christian was the driving out of demons. Yeah. Mark 16 is the truth. It's it's kind of interesting that modern Bibles, the, the more modern translations, put it in, you know, put a little marks around it and say, this may not have been in the earliest manuscripts. I don't buy that for a second. Right. I don't buy it for a second. Yeah. Which on Mark 16, actually, this is interesting because... Um, I learned about this in, in school where the, why, the reason they say that is because the Greek in, in the last 11 verses of Mark is so different from the rest of the book of Mark. They say it almost definitely has to be a different author. And you know what? I'm okay with saying that it was a different author. However, we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the canon of scripture that, okay, so John Mark didn't write it. Well, John Mark didn't write the gospel of Luke either. Or the letters of Paul. Uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews at all. We don't know who wrote Job. But we know that these are in the scripture because the Holy Spirit put them there. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who wrote them. John the Mark fact, was, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't John Mark, the theory is that he was writing down Peter's testimony? That's correct. Yes, yeah, may he maybe was, he was talking to a couple people. Who knows? Yeah. I believe right. in the authenticity of it because I've seen it put to work. Right. I've... Well, I my point is that regardless of who wrote it, it's in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And we either believe that God preserves the canon of Scripture or we don't. So the fact that it is in every Bible and it's in almost every manuscript we have, there's there's um, like one or two manuscripts out of the hundreds that they have the Book of Mark that it's not in. And one of them is the the um, Sciatus Vaticanus, which is the Catholic canon. So, you know, you know, go figure, right? So just because it's, you know, missing out of one or two manuscripts, it's there, it's in the Bible. Um, and that means God put it there. And we, we have to believe that the Holy Spirit inspires and preserves the scripture, or we just have no use of the Bible to begin with, right? Yeah. So um, that is inspired canon. It doesn't matter who wrote it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good place to move into the Nicene area because you brought up the Catholic Church. So uh, from about in the early 300s, the Nicene era began, right? Right. And so, deliverance took a turn around there, right? Um, yeah. And I think one of the things that I, the preconception that I have coming into this research was that we have uh, the conversion of Constantine. And the picture I had, like I think most Pentecostals have, is you have like pure revival right until uh 312 when he converted and then all of a sudden you had like the 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 miter hats and the catholic church worshiping dead people and all this stuff and that's not exactly how it happened so there was a subtle change that started before constantine constantine's legalization of christianity accelerated that that was already happening so 
um, the church was already beginning to decline um, by the late 200s and the early 300s, but it was still alive and well. So it wasn't like a huge thing. But when Constantine became a Christian, what happened was um, basically if you wanted to be in a political power, if you wanted to be wealthy, if you wanted to be successful, you needed to be a Christian. So now everyone in the world starts becoming a Christian because that's the thing that you need to do. So the church, which at this time was still intact, says, whoa, hang on, we need to find a way to prevent this from like basically inundating us with paganism. And their one of their answers to that was what they called baptismal exorcism. So when somebody came to get baptized, they would have to spend seven days being indoctrinated, repenting of sin, renouncing pagan gods, um, being scrutinized by bishops and church leaders who would say, hey, I don't really believe you're a legitimate convert. And then they could kick them out at that point. And then they would be uh, they would be getting deliverance this entire time. And then they would get baptized on the seventh day. So that was their system they developed to try to slow down this um, inundation of paganism. Unfortunately, I, I believe that that was successful in slowing it down, but it was not successful in preventing it, as history shows us that by the four and five hundreds, we have um, the embryonic Catholic Church, which was not as wicked as it would become, but it was already really seething in, in corruption at that point. So, um, and I think it was around the, the four or five hundreds that the first, the real first Pope, which would actually be what we would call a Pope today, um, started talking about like papal infallibility and the the mother church and, and all these things where that really came to fruition um and as that happened the real deliverance where like it casting out of demons interrogating demons that became more and more infrequent because um you know the secular historians say well you don't need to prove christianity now because everyone wants to be a christian so the fight was taken off the mission-mindedness that existed in the early church was taken off and within a few generations everything relaxed so as you slipped into the middle ages um the five, six seven eight nine hundreds um the real deliverance and exorcism became more and more infrequent and the only thing that existed was um, baptismal exorcism and at that time that was becoming watered down because you're now baptizing infants so infants don't get deliverance the same way we do. So all you do is just pronounce a few words over them and just sprinkle the water on them and whatever. And at best, maybe you're breaking some generational curses. At worst, if you ask real heavy critics of the Catholic Church, you're actually putting more demons in by do, using Baptizing Catholic Baptizing an infant and stuff. Right, yeah. right. So so the jury's out there on that. But um, by the high Middle Ages, which I would have expected, oh, that's when the Catholic Church was like, you know, doing their whole exorcism thing, right? Actually, no, from the like 10, 11, 12th century, there was almost zero exorcism in recorded history that we know about. So deliverance took a nosedive and basically died in the middle of the Middle Ages and had almost no existence. And I would say that the Middle Ages is certainly not an era of the church that I seek to uh, reproduce in the church today and the early church is some the church i want to reproduce and one of the things that was not the only factor but a major factor in that decline was deliverance declining as deliverance got taken out of the church and a lot of other factors um we see you know what the result was and not all causation is correlation but there's uh there's something to be said there for those for those who aren't aware of what the catholic church kind of practices today 
um, with their rights and whatnot. Um, could you give a little explanation of what a Catholic right looks like and where that came right. about? Right. So that actually, uh, so today, if you go to the Catholic church, um, Catholics have recently started doing something that looks more like what we would call deliverance. Um, and they call that deliverance short of exorcism. And they have this system where they rate how demonized somebody is. And if you're possessed by their definition, then you need to actually have an exorcism. And an exorcism in that case is they have this very long document that they read in Latin that is basically like these ritual rebukes of demons and they will sprinkle holy water and, and go, go through a ritual. So um, obviously, if we if you've seen much deliverance, uh, I don't see how that could be super effective in any sort of deliverance. Um, I I'm don't sure really... I'm sure some people do get a little bit of healing from it or something. I, you know, if, yeah, if you I, if you pull the rip cord just right, you might rip a demon out of there. But right, I, I guess it it could be possible, but just knowing how how many demons people can get from the Catholic Church, I'm. I, I would put more water in somebody doing something similar who wasn't Catholic, mm -hmm. but uh, that's what they do. And, you know, the way that it seems is like, oh, we've done this for hundreds of years. This is an ancient ritual. Well, it, it's it, not really because in the high Middle Ages, there was no exorcism at all. It did. It was very, very little. Um, it, their stories, the only stories in recorded history where there were demons and people, they would kick them out of the village and throw them into the forest because they didn't know what to do with them. So by the by the 1300s, the Catholic Church began to organize what would later become the ritual Romanum or the modern Catholic exorcism, where they began to put Catholic Latin chants together. And by the 1600s, that's when they had the finalized form of it. The, the current form that we have is the ritual Romanum. And that's basically how the Catholic Church tries to deal with demons. Now, when they have their deliverance short of exorcism, that seems to be where they are trying to apply principles that we've actually found to work in deliverance, like breaking curses and repentance and and rebuking demons. Um, and one of the people I interviewed for this book was a Catholic uh, priest who did deliverance, but was not qualified to do an exorcism by the Catholic definition. Now, to me, I'm just going to call them the same thing because we're casting out demons. That's what we're doing. Um, we can skip all the, the Catholic hocus pocus basically, and just, you know, get right to what Jesus was doing. Mm -hmm. So up and from right around the, I'm deliverance kind of disappeared off the radar for a while, right. but it's, it's sort of appeared again in, in the time of the Protestant reformation. And, um, what did that look like? Yeah. So, um, it, it, it came up in a number of different ways, mostly among Lutherans. Now, there was the first three groups was there were the Lutherans, the Calvinists, and the Catholics. And the Lutherans accepted that the power of God could still exist in the church um, because the Catholic church was claiming to have miracle stories. Unfortunately, a lot of their miracle stories were... Um, Mary appeared and said such and such, or the blood of G the Eucharist turned into the blood of Jesus. They were like, you know, not legitimate biblical miracles, but magical things, you know. So um, the Calvin response was, oh, miracles don't happen at all. And then, you know, Calvin wrote his Institutes of Christianity and just basically tried to dismiss the continuation of gifts of the Spirit. The Lutherans didn't do that. They, they realized that the power of God still ex did exist. 
Now, the first generation of Lutherans were actually praying for the sick. There's accounts of Martin Luther laying hands on people on their deathbed and then being healed. Um, but they were especially involved in exorcism and they were casting out demons. So uh, the, the Catholics and the Lutherans would kind of go back and forth and they would, you know, try to see who was the better exorcist to say the power of God was on our side. <laughs> um, but what was really interesting, it's, yeah, it's, it's so funny because in the scriptures, when Jesus disciples said, Lord, we saw people casting demons out in your name and we forbade them. He's like, why did you tell them not to don't don't forbid them right. he who's not against us is for us it's like are we on team jesus or are we on team human institution right yeah right anyways so um what was really interesting that happened was the lutherans were emphasizing the importance of continuing the baptismal exorcism thing that the catholic church was doing they cleaned it up a little bit and they had uh, their version of it, which from our perspective would be something like breaking curses over infants and doing their infantile baptism. Um, the Calvinists didn't like that. And they basically ended up kind of subtly taking over the governments in the German principalities and then outlawing it and then imprisoning Lutheran priests for practicing baptismal exorcism. And it's such a little controversy that people don't know about that that was one of the most tense controversies between Lutherans and Calvinists during the Protestant Reformation. Did they actually make them like sign a document or something? Yeah. So they took over the Lutheran seminary and um, somehow they got in there and all the Lutheran priests that they graduated, they made them sign an oath swearing like out of all the things that Lutherans and Calvinists disagree on. The thing that they were so upset about is you have to swear that you're not going to do exorcism of any kind and that that is um, Catholic hocus pocus, and we have absolutely no place for that. And it's like, geez, Louise, why is that your your major concern? You know, but it's because the enemy wanted to get rid of it. And, and even the fact that baptismal exorcism is like, well, how big of a threat could that be to the enemy? Well, it had to be some sort of threat. At least the idea of casting out demons was a threat that we needed to get rid of it out of the Protestant religion altogether. Who knows, man? I mean, I'm sure in the time you're you've been a father now, how long? Like a couple weeks been um she's almost a month old i bet you've told satan hands off right i'm sure right. that does something in the spirit i i agree and that and i and i think that the practice of baptismal exorcism at least the idea i mean the baptism the infant baptism part i mean i i could not i'm not here there i'm yeah. not i you know we don't believe in that but um, i think you got to be able to understand what it means to give your life to jesus in order to be buried into death with him Absolutely. But the idea of, hey, um, here's our child and we are just but through the blood of Jesus breaking the power of um, original sin and generational curses. And that was one of the big things was the idea of original sin, that that was being broken at that moment. The mm -hmm. idea of original sin, generational curses and all demonic influence are going to be broken off of this baby right now in the name of Jesus. And they're going to start off with a fresh slate. Um I think that that's a total biblical concept and that that does have a, a a value. And but what persuaded me that it had value so much was the way that the enemy tried to resist it so steadfastly. Oh, yeah. you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, there was something there was something to that. 
And and it was a very tense controversy. I mean, there was like a, a Lutheran dad who took an axe. It was no, no, it wasn't an axe. He was a butcher. And he took his butcher knife to the priest and he said, if you don't baptize my kid properly, I'm going to chop your head off. You wow. know, saying you need to you need to do the whole baptismal exorcism thing. And then the, the Calvinists were saying, no, if you do do it, then we're going to throw you in jail and you're not going to get out of jail. We're not going to let you preach anymore. You know, so it's like it was a, wow. it was a tense controversy. Yeah. It brings up an interesting, maybe let's sidetrack for just a moment. In the Bible, we do see Jesus casting demons out of children. Right. Multiple. One of them he did at a distance at the request of a Greek Syrophoenician woman who was not even a child of God. He said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Right. But she had enough faith to say, yeah, but even the little children get the crumbs or even the dogs get the crumbs from the children's table. Right. And the Lord healed her daughter. So there, there is something powerful that happens when you cover your children with the blood of Jesus, bless your children, command Satan to keep his hands off and to leave. Um, and I mean, th there's a lot of power there. And right. anyways, yeah. So the Protestants and the Calvinists had it out. Um, did that, did that uh, movement of the Protestants fully get redacted or what happened there? Um, yeah, definitely did. So the first generation, they were doing it. They were casting out demons. The second generation, by that time, the Calvinists had basically, um, through taking over the seminary and government institutions, which at that time, the government had a lot of control over the church, um, they were able to completely get rid of it so that within a couple of generations, there was no more deliverance or exorcism at all within Protestantism. So and it started off with a lot. So it wasn't just like, oh, they ha it happened a little bit here or there. There was a major part of the Protestant Reformation that got completely extinguished um, by a real purposeful, what I would assess to be work of the enemy to prevent it from getting any further. Now, there were other reformers like George Fox and Cotton Mather that um, got into deliverance. How'd they get into it? Yeah, so George Fox, um, he was living in Great Britain at the time. And he was just like looking at the Anglican church and he was like looking at the Bible and he's like, this is just like, <laughs> this is not it, bro. He's like, I don't, I don't see the resemblance here between what the Bible is describing and what we should be experiencing. And he began just basically talking to the Holy Spirit and diving into what I would probably assess to be an intimate prayer life. And the Holy Spirit began opening the scripture to him. So he began to learn about the scripture and everything. And um, he just like waltzes out of his prayer closet and he starts talking to people about the power of God. He gets baptized in the Holy Spirit at some point. He speaks in tongues. Um, other Quakers begin speaking in tongues and they're healing the sick. They're praying for people and they're casting out demons and they're emphasizing it too. So uh, George Fox would like go into a church building and he would like stand up in the middle of the pastor's sermon and be like, Hey, you're not born again, but you can be delivered from all those demons and you can all like get the Holy spirit, but you need to like, stop like playing this hokey pokey religion game. And then they would pick him up and throw him out of the church building and like gnash their teeth and beat the crap out of him and put him in jail. So um, that was basically what was happening with George Fox is yeah, it was bold and it caused a huge revival. And there were thousands of people getting saved 
um, deliverance, tongues, healing, like the whole nine yards right there in the 1600s. I mean, that's pretty incredible. And, and most of your listeners, I bet, have probably never heard that before because I know I didn't. Before I heard you talk about it, I'd never heard about it. Crazy. Yeah. Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather. Um, this poor guy really got the short end of the stick. It was a little bit different with him um, because he was a Puritan minister. Now, I just finished reading his diary, and this some of this isn't in the book because I, I finished reading this more recently. But he was just praying and fasting and just like, he's just like anything that happened in his life. He's like, I'm just going to take the next 12 hours and just pray and fast because I just need to like seek the Lord. And Puritans were Calvinists. They didn't believe in the gifts of the spirit. They didn't believe in the continuation of miracles, but Cotton Mather um, was having visitations from angels that would come and speak to him and give him revelations. And again, a lot of this isn't in the book because it's more about Cotton Mather as a person, but like he was one of the greatest scientists of that time. He invented modern meteorology. He invented inoculation. He invented modern botany. And he got all of that out of revelations from his prayer closet from praying and fasting. <laughs> so, but awesome. when you say, when you say Cotton Mather, they say, Oh, he's the guy that was killing all the witches. Okay. Well, this is what really happened is Cotton Mather was casting out demons. People, people were, people were de demonized and he was casting them out, um, which you're not supposed to do as a Calvinist, but he was doing it anyways. And, um, then the witchcraft trials happened. Now, having read the history, this is what I believe happened. I believe that there was real proliferation of witchcraft. Now, in your secular schools and in your liberal New Age art colleges, they're going to tell you, oh, it was all hallucinations and all this garbage. Sure. Well, the woman who started it was the daughter of a witch doctor from Haiti. So, And she was teaching these young girls how to um, talk to the dead by looking through a, an egg white. So, yeah, there was... That was the thing that started it. And there were people getting involved in witchcraft. Um, and at first, at that time, the Cotton Mather began to address that by saying, hey, we need to like pray and fast and repent and like not like, like just start hanging people. Well, then as people began to get fearful, then they got fanatical and they just started accusing people of being witches willy nilly and they started hanging people. And Cotton Mather and his father said, hey, we can't just believe everything people say we need to have hard evidence of somebody being convicted of witchcraft before we can get victims and that's actually what ended the witch trials but modern media portrays cotton mather as like this pharisaical um horrible man who would just come in and just you know there's the witch and there's the hang them and and that really wasn't it at all and you read some of the people who were convicted of witchcraft in the early days um, the evidence, uh, you know, and, you know, people may not like this, but but some of the things, if it was actually true, what people were saying about these people, um, there were people doing real witchcraft at that time. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that our response should be the same way uh, with no. witchcraft. We should deal with it, it through spiritual weapons and not through civil weapons. Physical but, weapons. Yeah. Right. But at that time, it was in a society that witchcraft was illegal and mm -hmm. I, they they mishandled it in a lot of ways. But Cotton Mather was actually one of the people who was advocating for not just believing everything people say, not hanging people just on the drop of a dime, praying and fasting rather than going straight to the courtroom and using spiritual weapons. At, but he got smeared because of that. And because he got smeared, all of the things he did in Deliverance, all of the things he did with all the scientific pursuits he got, all got covered up by history and no one knows about it. Wow. That's crazy. The yeah. mood, the... Did any of the followers of George Fox or Cotton Mather 
continue doing deliverance or did it sort of stop with them? Yeah, great question. So George Fox, actually, um, his followers decided when he died to just burn all of his writings about deliverance and healing, um, cut it out of his journal um, and just cover it up and make sure nobody knew about it. Cotton Mather, um, he did cast out demons and some of the people around him did, I think. It had a little bit of traction, but it never took off because he was... Cotton Mather was living in the twilight of the Puritan era. So his influence was not in a place where I feel like it could really last. And because of the witchcraft trials that tarnished his reputation, it kind of prevented anything that he taught like deliverance or anything like that from really having any longevity because, oh, you're the same guy, you're the witchcraft guy. So we're not going to listen to this whole demon nonsense about, you know what I mean? So it just got lumped in with the witchcraft trials and it ended up kind of killing it. So it's really unfortunate. Were there any other um, people during the Reformations that are worth talking about or any other conclusions from that time period? Um, yeah, there was a lot of people uh, throughout church history that were casting out demons. I mean, another big name, it was John Wesley. Um, John Wesley. Oh, yeah, the Methodists, the Methodists. Yeah, the Methodists. They, they were casting out demons. Eventually, of course, their followers, you can see the Methodist church today. What's, trying so to- what's interesting, <laughs> I actually know a Methodist pastor who um, uh, a woman pastor in Wisconsin who believes in casting out demons and does it. Uh, She's no longer in ministry. She's retired at this point, but um, I I found that interesting. Yeah. And I found that surprisingly, when you talk to Methodists who aren't part of the Methodist church, that's in apostasy, um, they seem to be more open to deliverance than like some Pentecostals are, which is just really fascinating. You would never expect it, but it's a part of their foundation. That's probably a good time to talk about the birth of Pentecostalism. And uh, yeah, the birth of Pentecostalism, Azusa Street, that sort of stuff, what was going on around that time. Yeah, so... um we always think, uh, I mean, and I would vaguely consider myself in the Pentecostal or charismatic part of, of the body of Christ, but we always think that Pentecostals are the ones who have the power of God because they believe in healing and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, but we talked to Pentecostals today and they don't, none of them really like deliverance very much. Uh, they like speaking and, in tongues. Right. They like speaking in tongues. They don't like deliverance very much. So we go back to Azusa Street when this started and and to summarize basically what happened was William Seymour um, was trying to figure out what was the power of God and what could have been demonic because you've seen a lot of weird stuff and Charles Parham came in gave him an assessment of hey this is demonic this is not we need to cast out demons and he says oh no no we don't want anything to do with that we're just going to let the Holy Spirit have his thing here kick Charles Parham out and then the revival collapsed a few months later so we see that, that that taking a passive approach and allowing demons to take control of the revival was what probably killed Azusa Street. Now, I've told that to Pentecostals before. Robert Salerdin says that in his book. He is the star child of Pentecostalism. I mean, he was raised by Kenneth Hagin and, and Oil Roberts. And that was his assessment in his book of the situation of what was going on. And I interviewed him and he was able to confirm that to me that that's, that's basically what had happened. Some people thought it was a race issue because Charles Barham 
was white and and William Seymour was black, and that was the problem. That wasn't the problem. It was a deliverance problem, um, and it was a it was a deeper question that I think Pentecostals still struggle with: of where do we allow, where do we take a laissez-faire approach where I'm hands off and I let the Holy Spirit do His thing, and where do we need to assert order and and stop certain things from happening? And I think Pentecostals and Charismatics have always generally struggled on being too passive and allowing anything to happen and that power vacuum basically being taken advantage of by demons that the passivity is totally off topic but i'm sure you've read war on the saints yeah it's actually right over right over that, there it's a, it's... that is a book i think every listener that's serious about this should read is war on the saints is sort of um Proto Deliverance writing by Jesse Penn Lewis. Um, phenomenal book about passivity and false doctrine being huge open doors for the demonic in our lives and how we need to actually take authority over situations and over our thoughts and whatnot. Right. And it, it really honestly seems like I can't say this with certainty, but she was, her and Evan Roberts were writing that as an assessment of the results of Azusa Street. Um, which don't get me wrong, Azusa Street was definitely a move of God, but it was hijacked because of passivity. So um, I, I agree that would that book, uh, honestly, and if you're out there and you're listening to this and you consider yourself to have like any sort of involvement in deliverance, this is an essential read it, book. read it. Like, we, we, you know, Dennis and I were just talking about like everyone follows the demon slayers and we, we appreciate them for bringing awareness to the body of Christ, but we need to like have some of these foundational classics um yeah like i don't know about you dennis do you do, was win worley like an influence of yours at all in your oh, yeah. journey yeah. yeah i actually stumbled across win worley later in in my deliverance journey um i stumbled more across like larson and and people right. who operate like larson early on and then so I came from that very formal approach to deliverance to more of what Worley had going on. But I mean, I learned a copious amount from Worley. I can't say I agree with everything that came out of the man's mouth. I can't say I agree with everything that comes out of anybody's mouth, right. but Worley was great. And Jesse Penn yeah. Lewis and Evan Roberts were phenomenal book. I right. mean, that's, that's really interesting. Cause I had a very similar journey. Cause my first exposure to deliverance was Bob Larson and when I was first involved in deliverance, like my mentors were uh, Church Sickenu in San Diego, like Art Montgomery and Ben Wisen, and they had a more, um, they, they were still pretty forensic, but like not forensic. Like I was like, you need to like get the number of mm -hmm. generations, like get the demon talking or yeah. it doesn't count. Like, and I was like, you know, so <laughs> anal about it. And then, I've gotten less and less <laughs> forensic as right. time goes on. Now that I'm a pastor, like I don't have time for all that. So like when I'm ministering to people, like I want to use the approach that takes the um, elite that I get the most bang for my buck, basically. But a lot yeah. of times it, it does take some pretty strong forensics. But oh, yeah. I, I stumbled across Win Worley later. And same thing with you. I learned so much from him. Oh, it definitely great. helped me like loosen up in a lot of ways. Um but his his introduction to deliverance was war on the saints mm -hmm. so if you're out there and it, you want to know like people that you should listen to like for deliverance like bob larson Derek prince win worley frank hammond they were like foundational members that brought deliverance back and micah stephen bell's pretty good too him and frank hammond did a lot of stuff together i i, I don't i don't not super familiar with him but to go back even further 
War on the Saints was what introduced Win Worley to Deliverance. And I and I it's you read that book, you read every page, you're like, oh my gosh, what a revelation. I mean, like, it's like yeah. it just it was so so awesome. It just so, shows yeah. you how how like oh my gosh, it's just if you are at all a passive person and you're not constantly analyzing every thought that's coming through your head, that book will make you rethink right. that. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Oh man. It's it's crazy because there's people um that's a big problem in New England, that passivity. And it's a problem people, everywhere, man. Yeah, it's, so... it's it's a problem everywhere. But there's people that came to my church that were basically the um stock picture of what they were describing in war on the saints and thank god they've been delivered and they're they're free from that now but it's like you can see it you read it and you're like oh my gosh that's so and so they're describing right there you know the dissociation too man it's just like yeah anyways so one of the things i think it was you that was talking about it correct me if i'm wrong but the doctrine of modalism where that came about in the pentecostal Mm. um i've actually so i the spirit that is the modalism demon i've confronted it i've figured it out i believe it's the spirit of antichrist because it's denying Mm. the father and son and i've cast that spirit of antichrist out of people who had the modalism doctrine after i showed them through the scripture that the father and son are different people um and they believed it and repented the spirit that was behind that was actually antichrist but Mm. um was it you that was talking about where that doctrine originated it may have been me. I, I I know where it came from. The dude that they were at like a camp event. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So again, this is something that uh, was in one of Robert Lairdon's books. Um, and this is like 10 years after Azusa street and they're having this big Pentecostal camp meeting. And this guy, I, I, I may not get every detail right, but basically what happens is he has some vision or something like this um, gets up, just starts like running around, running around the camp meeting like oh my gosh if we're not baptized in the name of jesus only there's no trinity it's only jesus uh we're all going to go to hell and and he was having like at least the onlookers described it as like a psychotic type episode but literally half because pentecostalism was such a so receptive of just whatever every spiritual thing that happened half the camp got up and followed this guy and that was the foundation of um the Pentecostal, the oneness Pentecostal movement that is today. And I also have run into that spirit before. I've never made the connection that there was an antichrist spirit behind it, but yeah, that um, spirit of modalism, I believe actually is antichrist spirit because um, that's what I called it out as. And bam, it came right. I mean, it, it was angry. It, that was an angry, angry demon that um, you don't know who you're messing with. That is I mean, it came out, but it was really, (laughs) it was really angry that I, that, I mean, that it just clicked in my brain when I was praying with this person. I'm like, this is antichrist because it denies the father and the son. And I called it out and it full-blown manifest and was really upset that I called it out. Um, Yeah. Go after that. If you see someone with that modalism doctrine, go after that antichrist spirit. Right. And I think that you know, we just kind of think, oh, so somebody speaks in tongues. So that's like all cool. It's not cool. Like that, that doctrine is denying fundamentals of Christianity. And it's not just, first of all, yeah, you're going to get demons from believing stuff like that, but you're really like jeopardizing the legitimacy of your salvation when you come. Yeah. To it's like sketchy. That. It's sketchy. When you say that this, that the father is this, or the, that Jesus is the only, I mean, 
Jesus says, you deny the father and the son to know to this is eternal life that you may know Jesus or the, oh my goodness. <laughs> it's the spirit having its revenge. It's oh the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I don't, uh, I rebuke that. Um, <laughs> yeah. You can't deny the father and the son. There's a difference. You, if you deny the son, you'd have not the father also is what first John says. Right. Right. So yeah, it's a dangerous doctrine to believe, but. Um, absolutely yeah was there any anything else about the pentecostal the birth of pentecostalism or around the time of the welsh revival um unchecked spiritual power that you feel like we should talk about or you want to move well, on um it's up to you it's whatever interests you most i would just summarize it as kind of like like we said war on the saints i think was a critique of the errors of the early pentecostal movement that god was reintroducing his power but um the early Pentecostals, most of them did not know how to take that without becoming passive. Some of them did. I think Smith Wigglesworth um, and to a degree, John Lake are kind of like outstanding examples of people that came out of that, like the way that I think God intended. But a lot of that came out kind of awry because of passivity. Yeah. Yeah. Smith Wigglesworth, you should talk about his appendix story. Yeah. So, um, this is a great story when we talk about uh, Christians having demons. So like Smith Wigglesworth, um, he was born again. He's baptized in the Holy Spirit. He had already been laying hands on the sick and seeing people get healed. And he's dying of appendicitis. He prays, he prays, he gets worse. Um, and these people come over his house and he's like, we're going to pray for Mr. Wigglesworth. So they go upstairs and he's like dying in his deathbed. And this young man jumps on his bed. It says, I command that demon to come out of him right now in Jesus' name. And he writes in his book, he says, I would never have believed that I as a Christian could have a demon. But by the time that he had finished praying for me, it had come out and I was healed. So I didn't have any time to argue. So um, <laughs> he got, and then he got healed from appendicitis because a demon came out of him. And then yeah. from that point forward, he basically treated sickness as demons and would go and get great uh, success. Right. He had, I mean, he's like in, in the last 150 years, I think he is probably the the best example of the working of miracles and the gift of healing in the church. I mean, you could make a case for a couple of others, but to me, I think Smith Wigglesworth was probably like the, the yeah, premium. Faith. Right. He, great faith. He certainly did. And he had a tremendous amount of miracle power and he always treated it like a battle with the enemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Great great success i remember i don't remember if he was like he was like on a ship going across the ocean um for something i believe uh i believe this was him but he like there was somebody on the ship who like collapsed and was like about to die and he just rebuked the devil and this person was totally they stood up and they're like what's that sensation i feel from going moving all over me it feels great and he's like that's the fire of the holy ghost and the dude mm. gets born again and uh yeah he had some crazy experiences but yeah yeah so after pentecostalism you write in your book about the old guard and uh i like that title for these guys um yeah the old guard um where do you want to start with that well I would say up until this point in history, as far as I could read, there was always this like graph where deliverance would happen and it would redact. Deliverance would happen, they would redact. And this just pattern continued to go over and over again 
um, until the 60s and 70s, where at this point now we have ease of publishing. We have, um, you know, media. Well, more ease of publishing. More ease of publishing. Worley had a whole hard time getting his stuff published. And so did, uh, I know Micah Bell said they were having difficulty to, no one would publish their books. And... Right. So there was, okay, a better way to say it is it became possible for yeah. stuff to be written down. And I, I single out five people in the book that were, to what I can tell in my research, the foundation of the deliverance movement, which we live in today. And if you have any sort of involvement in deliverance, then your school of thought is stemming from one or more of these five people. Now, some people are like, oh, well, what about this guy? What about that guy? Because there was other well-known deliverance ministers at the time. But all of them that I have researched anyways actually were a subsidiary of one of these five. So those five were um, Lester Summerall, who would kind of become the foundation of the, the word of faith and the general Pentecostal approach to deliverance. Like, that's quick. It's about the power of God. It's about the anointing. Um, you have Derek Prince. Um, you have Frank Hammond. Win Worley, Bob Larson, and pretty much everyone I, I believe today has a their school of thought is a combination or coming from one of those schools of thought. Um, like Dennis and I said, well, we started off with a very Larson esque approach to deliverance, but then we got influenced by Worley, and now we have sort of a combination of those. Um, I'd say, people, I mean, I grab <laughs> everywhere yeah, I see something I, good, I grab it, and I'm me, like, me I too. want this. And, too. and at this point, I'm, I'm much more diverse, and I just want to use whatever works. Yeah. Right. But basically, I would say that they were the ones that influenced. So like Don Bashan, yeah, very influential, but he was basically a part of Derek Prince's um, Derek Prince's school of thought. So I, I say they uh, they had some weaknesses because they didn't work together very well. Um, they didn't all see eye to eye on some things. And um, and they never brought about a deliverance revival like they all wanted. But what they did do is they wrote books and they provided teaching so that um, there was kind of a lull, the 90s, a lot of them had died, the early 2000s, you know, the kind of era that we grew up in, uh, not a lot of deliverance, there was kind of like these like back closet type deliverance ministries you could find every once in a while, you had Bob Larson over in Arizona doing deliverance. Hagwish was still going on. Hagwish was still going on, but they're they all They still like, are going on. They're all like under the carpet, you know what I mean? It was yeah. never like really a deliverance revival, but they all wrote books so that 2020 comes around. 2019, 2020, and then more people from our generation start reading these books and they're like, hey, wait a second. I'm not supposed to be addicted to porn. I'm not supposed to be full of rejection and condemnation. What the heck is this? And the pastor, pastor, you know, why is this? Well, you just got to bear your rugged cross, brother. You just got to suck it up and just live your life. And no, mm -hmm. no, 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 that's not it. And and I think a lot of the millennials and Gen Zers are the ones who picked this up and they're the ones who are realizing, hey, I've been disenfranchised. And then you had these people, um, Pagani, uh, Salvador, and these other guys who during 2020, they all got on the internet, started talking about deliverance. Um, they all kind of has some, some wherewithal with social media and the message got out there. And we, we were all sitting at home looking up conspiracy theories. I mean, almost everyone in my church got born again <laughs> during the pandemic watching conspiracy theories and finding out that the end of the road was everyone is against Jesus. I got, so, I got born again during the pandemic, huffing nitrous and trying to summon aliens. <laughs> so, I mean, the Lord has his way, man. Uh, right. So, so that was, um, 
that was definitely, I think, the turning point where now we're not in, we're in the beginning of a revival. Now, deliverance is not the only thing. It's not like we're just going to see a bunch of deliverance. God's goal is a is a, an awakening, a reformation, excuse me, and a revival that would just blow this whole thing out of the water. But we're never going to have that revival until the church gets set free because the church is show and shackled. Listen, there's more demonic activity today than there was in Charles Finney's day or Jonathan Edwards day. They could have a revival without deliverance, you know, and th there were demons around and stuff, but they were not in the same level of bondage we are today. If we want to have a revival, I believe we must have a massive move of deliverance so that we can have a restoration of holiness as a uh, necessary prerequisite to revival. I think it's common. I don't Amen. think this, I don't think it's going to get redacted this time. I think I it think might, so I think it might ride that wave though, where popular goes up and down in popularity. But I, I believe that it's become so mainstream at this point that there's always going to be a remnant that's doing it. Right. Right. And, and the thing is now there's the internet and there's so many books that you can't, get it all off the internet you can't burn all the books uh the devil the fire is burning too hot now the devil can never get it out he might be able to suppress it but you're never going to completely redact deliverance from the church again until the lord returns i believe there's there's something you talked about in your book that i'm in agreement with you on um you've talked about it in your book and on your youtube channel and we could go on about this topic for a while i'm sure but Needless casualties. Mm. That was a work of the devil. Right. To redact spiritual warfare on a high level. And right. um, I just today I was on, I don't go on Facebook much, but today I went on Facebook for 15 minutes or something. And I saw a whole thread where people were arguing about this exact topic. And the majority of the people were on decide of this is not something that you should do you're gonna die if you do it and uh yeah you want to talk about that for a minute yeah so um the bible says that we have all authority over the power of the enemy and that nothing shall by any means harm us it says I'm, gonna, in... I'm gonna make a whole podcast about this particular thing about how we're gonna go through the book of ephesians and we're gonna look right. at how jesus christ has been raised from the dead placed at the right hand of the father far above every principality power ruler everything in all creation he's up here and then how god took us and seated us inside of jesus christ right. up here and then ephesians 6 says we wrestle against these principalities powers that are down here right, right? i'm gonna do that sometime anyway sorry go on that's all right yeah, Paladin is upset about the topic too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess basically what happened is John Paul Jackson wrote his book. I mean, you had Win Worley and Derek Prince passed away, and they were both teaching that we should um fight principalities. Mm -hmm. And then John Paul Jackson comes up and says, Oh no, like he, he basically his book, Needless Casualties of War, just all it is is a collection of horror stories about people who attacked princes and powers probably in an inappropriate way and then had severe problems afterward. And then he says, see, look at all these horrible things that happened. Now don't do it unless you want that to happen to you too. Yeah. If and you then, throw a missile up at, well, actually you'd be throwing it down at the principalities and powers from your position and then stand there and do nothing. What's going to happen. 
Right. You're, you're going to get slapped around. Right. And if you do it in pride and arrogance, um, there was a guy I talked about in the last episode of my podcast or one of the last episodes who I watched this dude go from someone who had great potential seemingly walking with the Lord, wanting to do deliverance to completely losing his mind and, and, and believing that demons were a part of his soul that needed love and healing. And one thing that happened right before that was he stood in my, in my living room of my apartment and said, we challenge you, Satan, you come down here. We challenge you to this and that. And I'm like, speak for yourself, bro. But anyways, you yeah. can't arrogantly go against these things either. Right. There's a right and a wrong way to do it. And, and, uh, you know, neither being arrogant nor hiding and hoping the devil doesn't come and get you are the right way to go. Um, we need to strategically, humbly, and in Christ attack principalities and powers through the power of the Lord Jesus. I mean, that's what the Bible tells us to do. And no matter how many horror stories that we hear, that doesn't change what the scripture says. Just like no matter how many wanky charismatics there are, that doesn't mean that the gifts of the spirit have ceased because the Bible says that they have continued. It's the same, it's the same sort of argument from experience that cessationists use. So there's, there's basically there there's kind of two schools of thought when it comes to attacking principalities. There's the let's bind them up and loose let's bind and loose. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, let's intercede and fast and pray and beg God to do something about it. I lean more in that category of fasting, praying, interceding, praying that God would deconstruct their realms and their power and their structures and replace them with his kingdom and interface his kingdom with this world. That's how I lean more towards it, but I don't have a problem with binding and loosing. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll bind and loose when I, when I feel led to do it, but it's less common than the other way. Um, I know you had said in one of your uh, videos when you were talking about this, that you're more of the bind and loose person, mm -hmm. which I think is totally valid too. But then there's a camp of people that say, don't do it at all. And this has, in my opinion, put a lot of Christians under fear of the mm -hmm. demonic, fear that the enemy is undefeatable, that you have no place no authority to come against these demons. And I even saw people say, God has placed these demons in these positions and he wants them there. And you're going against God to attack these demons because God has ordained them to be there, which yes, God does give them permission to be there. But my opinion is that mankind was given dominion in the garden, that God never mm -hmm. took that away from us, that we've been restored our authority and position in Christ to do something about that dominion that's been given to the enemy by mankind. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, um, with our method of attacking princes and powers, I, I think both ways are, are, are very valid. Um, binding and loosing and fasting, praying, seeking the Lord that he would change things. I don't think it has to be an either or thing, even though you're right that people probably lean more on one or the other. Um, and I think that, um, man, what was your second question? Losing my train of thought. Sorry. <laughs> that was a, it was a mouthful, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, my question was, um, 
Man, now I'm losing my thought. <laughs> yeah, my cat was um, over there playing with the curtains. So I was distracted. No, you're good. Um, I think what I was saying was that you've got people who are afraid to take on these entities. Right. And I've even seen people say that God has placed these right, demons right, right. in authority and that we have no right to challenge what, why they're there or try to take them out of authority. But my understanding from the word of God is that we were given dominion over the earth by the Lord. And that, you know, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, the devil said, Hey, bow down and worship me. And I'll give you these kingdoms because a th they've been given over to me and I give them to who I will. Well, if God gave Satan those kingdoms, it would be kind of redundant for him to say, hey, you gave me these kingdoms, but I'll give them back to you. No. Wh who gave him this stuff? It was mankind through right. perversion of their dominion. I mean, we have dominion. It mm -hmm. never changed. Mankind has dominion over the earth. God gave that to us. And we've given it to Satan. And through Christ, I believe that we have authority to take back what the devil stole. Christ said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And in the Old Testament, we see leaders of cities meeting at the gates to do their deals and their businesses and, and talk about things. And in the ancient world, that's where important things happened. So... What's your take on that, David? Um, I, I agree. I think that the whole like John Paul Jackson, like Star Wars view of spiritual warfare that like God and God has like this respectful, polite relationship with like his enemy. I, I think that's so obnoxious. That's not the way the Bible describes it at all. Um, the Bible describes through types and shadows in the Old Testament of God's people triumphing over the enemy, crushing him. Crushing giants. Yeah, like 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 David, like mocking Goliath, like God does not have a polite relationship with rebels in his cosmos. That is absolutely obnoxious. They are enemies of God and they are despised by us and by God. And that is the way it's supposed to be. First of all, and second of all, Dennis is right. God did give us dominion and power over creation. He did not give the devil dominion and power. He did not give princes... The, the authority that principalities and powers operate in comes from mankind. It is a usurped, hijacked authority that the collective people in a group, a region, give to a demon, power, a prince, to rule over them. Mm -hmm. But that authority is coming from the mankind that they are ruling over and not from some, like, secret-like deal that God made no. to, like, put these princes over the over the, over the the world. That's, that's ridiculous. No. If we had... If we had entire geographical regions that stood up and said, Freemasonry is not allowed here anymore, and every demon of Freemasonry is not allowed to influence this region anymore, guess what? Those spirits would have no right to be there. Right. You know? Right. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, we do have authority to take on these entities, but we have to do it intelligently and it takes people, it takes boots on the ground and it takes air support. It takes, right. it takes superior. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, that's about all I want to talk about with, with in terms of that. But I, I feel like that's another way the enemy has tried to redact deliverance. Um, yeah. Um, was there anything else you want to say about the old guard before we move on? Um, not necessarily unless you think of anything. 
I don't think so. Um, would you call the modern deliverance movement the new guard? Um, it in a sense, I would like the the Paganis and Isaiah Salvadors of the world. Yes, I would. I would call them the new guard in some sense, but I believe that they are not gods. Like they're not the real new guard yet. You know what I mean? I believe that there's a generation that is rising up that is going to be the actual um, revivalists that God is looking for. Yeah. I believe that God is using the demon slayers to bring awareness to deliverance and to, um, you know, bring this to the forefront. And a lot of them are helping people and that's good. Yeah. But I, man. Yeah. Amen. But I don't know that they are supposed to be the revivalists of the next revival. Um, they may be, and I may be wrong, but um, I just have this sense that it's going to be a larger group of younger people where it's not like this um, man of God or woman of God. There will be leaders in some sense, but it will be more like a body ministry. At least that's what I sense is, is going to be taking place in the next revival. Amen. Yeah. It's awesome, man. It's been really good to chat with you tonight. I'm glad you're able to get on here and um, yeah. Any, any listeners that are listening, um, if you have questions that you'd like to hear talked about on this podcast, shoot me an email at deliverance from demons podcast at gmail.com. Um, anyone that's in the New Hampshire area that wants to be a part of, do you want to give them just a brief rundown of your fire Academy, what those things look like and um, yeah, you're piercing the darkness stuff and whatnot. Sure. So we have um, a class uh, that we teach twice a year. Um, same class we have at our parent church in San Diego called Fire Academy. And basically it's an 18 week training program where we uh, give hands on training uh, for people to evangelize, cast out demons, heal the sick, hear words of knowledge and words of wisdom and um, grow in character while they're doing all those things. Um, and we, we go to the streets, we actually go out and do it. All the fire Academy students in New Hampshire and all the fire Academy students in San Diego, they have all healed the sick. They've all cast out demons. They all lead people to Christ. Um, our former students now they're out every week out on the streets, um, doing deliverances, leading people to Christ. And it's awesome. Cause that's what Christians are supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be just letting the pastor, like kind of like drag a dead horse along with him. Like, no, the whole body is supposed to be moving. Um, so if you're in San Diego or that area, or you're in New Hampshire, then we teach classes um, in in both those areas, and and hopefully in the future at some point in other other areas of the country. But our goal is to basically activate the body of Christ. Um, our semester will be starting in uh, first week of March, and in San Diego, it'll be starting the first week of February. Is there any way that um, that the listeners could pray for your ministry? Yeah. Um, I, we, we always need prayer that the Lord would just give us wisdom on how to bring revival and promote revival to New Hampshire and to New England, uh, that he would soften people's hearts here and bring them to the faith and that he would just give us grace and me specifically give me grace um, to be able to do the things that he's calling me to do here. Yeah. I want to say a prayer for you here and I want to ask the listeners to pray for us too. So you guys can just come into agreement with this. However you see fit, pray, pray along with me, whatever you want. So father in Jesus name, we just bless all the works of church, Sid canoe, New Hampshire and San Diego. God, we bless in Jesus name, 
all of the people that are going to be touched by fire academy and um lord we just ask that you would dismantle all the works of the enemy that are actively coming against the move of revival in new hampshire that you would dismantle their systems you'd tear them apart you'd rip down the pillars you'd crush every ancient um, thing that the enemy's got going on there that you personally lord would rule with a rod of iron over that region that you dash your enemies into pieces with your rod of iron that you would take the throne over new hampshire and that you would move in mighty ways there god and i pray that you'd continue working in the heart of david and in his wife and in his his newborn daughter lord that you would just fill their lives with your Holy Spirit, that you would invade with your kingdom, that you would establish um, in the heavenly dimensions around him uh, a, a military base, a factory for the for the kingdom of God to be exported into yes, New Hampshire. Lord. Lord, we just ask that the enemy could not touch this dimension, but that your angels and your heavenly entities could drop down into lower dimensions and crush the works of Satan and completely replace them and build Lord, we just ask that you would build in that region um, godly principalities and powers, that you'd put angels over certain regions and certain assignments, Lord, and that you would crush the daylights out of Satan. And Lord, everything that's coming against deliverance ministry in this world, we just bless your kingdom's work against that, Lord. We just We just ask that you would destroy the works of the enemy that would keep deliverance from breaking out in this world and from redacting lord we just ask right now god that um you would take a big black marker and that you would redact the enemy's plans yes, right out of their books lord that you'd black them out in jesus name and father we just ask that this you would raise up powerful men and women to bring deliverance to the forefront of the christian church that that as in the early church that deliverance could be a powerhouse that the devil's apple cart could be turned upside down that um all of the works of satan would be broken and we bless the listeners we bless you in the name of jesus christ may the lord god himself show you every demon in your life and help you dismantle everything that they're doing. May you be delivered. May you be sanctified, purified, made holy. Father, I pray that even right now, you would sovereignly, spontaneously drive demons out of the listeners, out of their lives, out of their families, out of their children, out of their ministry, yes, out of their finances, out of every domain that their foot steps. Because God, your word says that everywhere your foot steps, the sole of your feet, all the ground that your foot touches shall be yours. You told that to Joshua when he entered the promised land. And Lord, that was a type and a shadow of what we've got today. We've come to your heavenly Jerusalem and we just ask, Lord, that your heavenly jerusalem would interface with our lives in powerful mighty ways in jesus name we bless all of the works of your kingdom lord we bless all the angels that minister alongside of us and we curse the works of darkness we command them to fall apart in jesus name amen is there anywhere you want to pray for the listeners or for revival or deliverance brother I'm sure. Father, I just lift up everybody listening today, and I ask, Lord God, that you would use them to be fully functional members of your body and your army, Lord God, that they would be freed from all the fear of man, Father, 
that they'd be filled with boldness to be able to preach the gospel to the cashiers, to the people they interact with, to the needy or to the rich, Father God, that they would have the boldness to preach the gospel, Lord, that they would have the wisdom and clarity to understand and to know the scripture, Lord, that they would um, be united in discipling and discipler relationships in the name of Jesus, God. And I ask that you would activate them and train them to heal the sick and to cast out demons, Lord, in Jesus' name. And I ask God that you would bless this podcast, that you would bless Dennis, that you'd fill him with a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that he'd better know the hope to which he's called and the glory of the inheritance of the saints of Christ Jesus, Lord. And that you would just fill him um, with the knowledge and wisdom that he needs to be able to continue to build this podcast, uh, that you would bless the literature that you've put on his heart, Father God, that you'd give him grace to be able to complete that and work toward what you have in him, right, Father God, and that the writing and literature and booklets and pamphlets would get into the right hands of the right people, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Praise God. Yeah. Everyone listening, I just ask that you'd pray along for me, my family, this ministry, for David's ministry, for all the works of deliverance that God's doing in the world. And that, um, David and I were talking before the podcast about some things that some visions that I have that I'm going to share in future podcast episodes. And, um, I really believe the Lord's going to do great things in the lives of everyone listening. My hope is to see God's kingdom, the military branch of God's kingdom, quite literally be established through the lives of the people that listen, that, um, spiritual military bases so to speak would be established um and that the people on the ground would be um equipped to dispatch quick and swift and rapid destruction to all the works of satan not just on earth that is in the people and in territories that are demonized um, domains such as houses and whatnot, but also in the heavenlies that, um, I'll talk more about this in the future, but I, I really believe God has great things in store for us. And I, I believe that, um, that the Lord's going to do incredible things and he's already doing it. And I just ask that you'd pray along with that and share these podcasts with anyone that you think, um, could benefit from it. And go and pre-order David's book, uh, Redacted, The Secret History of Exorcism. Go pre-order it on Barnes & Noble so that deliverance literature can be in every Barnes & Noble across North America because it needs it. And um, yeah, God bless you all. Um, may the Lord Jesus teach you more and more what it means to be in Christ day by day. May he show you all of your demons and how to get free from them. And... Uh, May you be able to read the word of God and understand it and hear the voice of the Lord moment by moment in your life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.